0: You're listening to Red Flag Radio, the revolutionary socialist podcast broadcasting um, from Australia and everywhere on this set of islands we are on indigenous land land that was stolen and never ceded that always was and always will be aboriginal land and we um always open with that to pay our respects to elders past present and emerging and to make sure that everyone knows that that's where we stand we have a patreon um for the podcast which uh we have um an Number of loyal supporters, including our guest today, I should say. So (laughs) that's not the reason she gets to come on the show. But a special shout out and thank you to Moira for continuing to um, also support us, not just by your contributions to our podcast, of which this is not your first. You're definitely a friend of the show, but you're an extra special friend because you give us money to help us continue with the podcast. So welcome. It's my pleasure.
1: The podcast keeps me sane.
0: That's excellent. Um, I'm going to describe you as a veteran socialist and that's because it means you're very experienced and you know a lot and you've um, been involved in a whole heap of different struggles, both in the UK in the Socialist Workers' Party and now in Socialist Alternative here in Australia. You're based in Sydney. Uh, You're a member of the Teachers' Union up there and you're part of all sorts of um, campaigns and activism as a socialist, as we all are, and you've also been doing some research around the suffragettes. Is that correct? Tell uh-huh. me you know yeah. what you're talking about. Yeah,
1: <laughs> The whole and- of my life, actually, because I grew up in Manchester and the Pankhurst were a big part of kind of Manchester, kind of left-wing history. So, yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah you've, you've been marinated in the history of the suffragettes <laughs> for a long time. Yeah. So let's talk about, I mean, this is such an interesting topic and I've been you know, reading the notes and I came to your talk at um, the Socialism Conference a little while ago and I learned a bunch of things um, from, from that talk. And I think there's a bunch of stuff that people sort of have, it has become kind of like a, a mythical history in a way that's wound up in feminist politics and um, progressive kind of left liberal politics. So I wanted to start with this question of like, why does it matter that we get the history of the suffragettes in this movement right today?
1: Yeah, I think it's astonishing actually because I think there are lots of things in history that people know there are alternative interpretations. I think with the suffragettes, there is a widely accepted interpretation that the suffragettes are the reason that women got the vote in Britain. And it was all about these brave individuals who were willing to be, you know, they were tortured by the British government, including very famously Emily Davidson, who threw herself under a horse. And that, you know, I remember as a kid, you know, my sister saying she wasn't going to vote. And my mum saying, women died so you could have a vote. And that's just the way it's talked about. And I think it's a history that, isn't the full story and one that should be challenged and is open to challenge because it kind of offers a model for how we fight for women's rights today, which is one that I don't agree with. And I think it's not true that the suffragettes were the model for how women won the vote. And, and therefore, I think it is one that should be open to challenge You know, because it kind of posits a view of the world that change is won by the actions of a few individuals who are, you know, heroic and prepared to sacrifice themselves. Well, of course, most of us can't do that in our lives. Mm -hmm. So we're not going to be the change makers. And that uh, advances for oppressed groups also come from cross-class alliances, and in the case of the suffragettes, it's the more educated, middle class, bourgeois women who lead the campaign on behalf of other women. And I think I was reminded a lot about that earlier in the year when the kind of a bit of the Me Too moment happened in Australia around, you know, the terrible alleged sexual assault of Brittany Higgins and the other incidents that have happened. And you kind of got this idea of like, oh, there's a women's movement to get change. And that that's one that's going to be led for, led by politicians, et cetera, not by mass movement. And that also that all women had the same interest in that campaign. Mm. Christabel Pankhurst said an interesting thing about that, about why it's right that the movement apparently was led by the middle class women. That bourgeois women break glass ceilings and that's how we get change for all women. She said, the houses of parliament shall be more impressed by the demonstrations of the feminine bourgeoisie than of the feminine proletariat. Mm. So I think it's like a very powerful, I think a mythical history, as you say, that that's how women won the vote, but also how we can win change today. And I think it's one that should be challenged. Mm. And the thing
0: about the the, the stuff in Australia around sexual assault in parliament and Christian Porter and all of that, that, you know, p- p- the majority opinion was if someone like um, Julia Banks, former liberal MP says the right kind of things about it, condemns these powerful men for the things that they allegedly did, then she's part of the movement just as much as, you know, anyone else. And in fact, it's probably more important because she's the kind of woman who these kind of men will listen to, which is exactly yeah. the same as the, as the P- Christabel Pankhurst quote mm. from, you know, from a 100 years ago.
1: Yeah, and it's two things about that. One is it says that, you know, it's reasonable argument that will bring us change for women, and yet we live in a system that systematically oppresses women. And, you know, even though we got equal pay in theory, 40 years ago, we still don't get equal pay, et cetera. So I think it's that's one myth that it pro- uh, propagates. Yeah, And the other is the thing that we all have something in common as women, that there's this universal category of women where our interests are the same. And I think the real story of the fight for the vote actually shows that that wasn't true then. And I think there's lessons for us in that today. Yeah, Because I mean, one of the things about the suffragettes is it's remarkable that the, the movement of the British suffragettes is really well known around the world and it's kind of seen as this model. And yet women in Britain didn't get the vote until after the end of World War I. The campaign had been wrapped up. But the, well, that section of the campaign of the Women's Social and Political Union led by the Pankhurst had wrapped up their campaign in, as World War I broke out to be loyal to the British Empire and that, the, you know, the second element of that is that most women didn't get the vote till 1928 in Britain. Mm. And yet it's kind of held up as the model, whereas other places in the world where there was much wider, more radical struggles, America, for example, aren't seen that way,
0: mm. you know. Yeah. Um, and I think that's part of uh, um, a deliberate strategy on behalf of the British ruling class to kind of have that. History. if we're going to tell the history of some struggle in Britain that we don't mind talking about as a ruling class, then the suffragettes is a palatable one for all the reasons mm. we've just started to say. So, so that is um, part of the explanation, I think. So where, yeah. do we, where should we actually start then with the roots of the suffrage campaign um, in the UK? How, how far before 1928 do we want to go back?
1: Yeah, so I think the reality that most of the impetus for the campaign for suffrage came from the radical traditions of the working class movement, at really a hundred years before uh, the kind of height of the WSPU, the Women's Social Political Union campaign. So even as back as 1819, when the Peterloo massacre took place, which was a mass demonstration as part of a series of mass demonstrations in that, that one took place in Manchester at Pete, St. Peter's field. That's, it was called Peterloo because it was a massacre took place and people deliberately drew the link, the links to Waterloo, you know, uh, in a very conscious political way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there'd been a monster demonstration in Birmingham. There was a monster demonstration in London. And as part of that right to vote campaign, at the end of the Napoleonic Wars. There were many women involved in that campaign who were holding banners on the day that the Manchester and Salford Yeomanly went into the crowd, killed 18, 19 people, this kind of, you know, not clear, injured hundreds on a very peaceful demonstration, a mass gathering of 60,000 people. There was a woman called Mary Files from the Manchester Female Reform Union was on the platform that day to speak about female suffrage. So mm. the origins go back to the earliest kind of working class movements in England.
2: Mm.
1: Yeah. It's not that this comes from the enlightened bourgeois women who, you know, talk about this gradual change. It was the origins are in a mass movement of people fighting for a better world.
0: And so that that's the Chartist, right? So one of the earliest. Um mass working class movements in in history in the 1830s and 1840s. Can you tell us a bit more about them just generally, just briefly? I know we could do a whole yeah. podcast on the Chartists. But-
1: yeah, no, you should do it. I mean, the Chartists right. was a movement in the 1830s that came, interestingly, that thing about, you know, in 1819 when the Peterloo massacre took place, it was a kind of gamble on the part of the ruling class to try and destroy the reform movement and you know, massacring people can sometimes do that for you. Can sometimes achieve that. Other times, it backfires. But in this case, it did dampen the radical movement. But then, in the eighteen thirties and forties, you got the reemergence of a mass movement, the first working class one in history. Really, you get a you get a general strike in Stockport, which is a town outside Manchester, for example. The first general strike. In history and they were they kind of had five demands about really the rights of overall for male suffrage for annual parliaments for secret ballot kind of fighting for the rights of working class people in a system where you know the parliament existed but it was very corrupt and cornwall which had hardly any people sent more people sent more members of parliament up to westminster than the entirety of birmingham for example which was a massive city at this time Mm. and and that kind of phase of the campaign that later became you know the suffragettes kind of originated in that in chartism Mm. and and until that point you know the chartism chartism really put a lot of working class people on the map
2: Mm.
1: and it put the idea that women should be equal on the map as well
2: there's a direct history with the Chartists uh, feeding into Australian radical history as well. The, um, the year before the Eureka Rebellion was the 1853 Red Ribbon Rebellion, uh, centred around Bendigo in Victoria. And one of the most prominent like left-wing radical leaders of that uh, was a guy by the name of George Thompson, who was a Chartist who'd come out here. I don't know if he'd come out here as one of the, um, like if he'd been transported uh, or if he'd just sort of come here. His own free will. I can't remember exactly how he got here, but he led that struggle And um, the Red Ribbon Rebellion in particular was important because it was the sort of straw in the wind for what would come the following year with the Eureka Uprising. Uh, But it's also incidentally uh, evidence that against the supposed kind of racist inclinations of the diggers, because uh, the the Red Ribbon Rebellion was um, one of the reasons it's kind of celebrated is precisely because everyone on the field, like all of these people from all over the world uh, were wearing the Red Ribbon. Uh, fighting for democracy and signing the petition. And, in fact, if you go and look at the tens of thousands of names on the petition, uh, a bunch of them are actually in Chinese characters.
1: Oh, wow.
0: That's Um, great. Yeah. Yeah, there's a whole other podcast in this. We'll come back to that, Liam. (laughs) Our (laughs) comrades across the world. So this period that then becomes like the period of new unionism in that 1880s what were some of the women's struggles involved in this because this is when we get the I was going to say the spark of the match girls strike but I'm sure we've <laughs> all used that pun before yeah um so tell well, us about some of the women involved in in that kind of um, emerging union militancy
1: yeah so in the 1830s and, and 40s you have charters in which is mass it's radical is ultimately defeated and then the kind of traditions that ex- had existed in the British trade union movement, which was that trade unions were kind of reserved for the most skilled workers. They were very sectional, you know, that you kind of fought for your interests, not for the whole working class. And they tended to be, well, they were overwhelmingly men because they were the more skilled workers, etc. And they were very conservative. They were interested in the very narrow economic demands of a minority of men. That was blown apart in the 1880s by new unionism. And as is often the case in history, the struggles were led by casual workers, by the poorest, by unskilled. And in the case of new unionism, it it was the young female workers of the Bryan and May factory in East London who did light a flame when (laughs) they went on strike and this was championed by Eleanor Marx, uh, Karl Marx's daughter and other socialists and that led to a spate of struggle elsewhere amongst previously non-unionised workers. There were blanket weavers, uh, women workers in Yorkshire and women cigar makers in Nottinghamshire for example. And in 20 years really, from the start of new unionism in the 1880s, the number of women in trade unions in Britain increased by 400%. And the strongest place that was, was in the cotton mills of Lancashire and Cheshire and the woolen mills of Yorkshire. Until World War I, the the most common job for women in Britain was as domestic servants, in big houses like in Downton Abbey Mm -hmm. and they, they were very hard you couldn't not really organize there but it was in those big collective workplaces of the mills that women began to organize and you know these women did amazing things of organizing campaigns for better conditions for better pay for an end to rampant sexual harassment and for political rights and it was this movement really that gave birth to the suffrage movement from which the suffragettes, which is the name that's given to the Women's Social and Political Union, mm. that as distinct from the suffragists who were these working-class women, particularly in Lancashire and Yorkshire, that, that gave birth to the political struggles for women to have the right to vote.
0: And that, I think, leads us to a point about a socialist understanding of the world because if you think about just a pure kind of economist way of looking at things, you would say those women workers in those factories would only really care about their immediate working conditions, right, and their pay. So if they're going to be organised, they're going to be organised around, you know, we want more safety at work, we want shorter days, and we want higher pay. But actually, these women started to think about these kind of political demands, like should we have the right to vote? So what Mm. How was that connection made or sort of how did that emerge? You said yeah. it sort of emerges, but like how does that happen?
1: Yeah, well, I think often that rights are seen as an abstract kind of thing that humans should have, you know, and that's separated off, as you say, from like economic struggles. But what, for these women, there was they saw these things as like intimately connected and that suffrage was never an abstract idea about it's our right to have it. They understood that they had to that, you know, the winning the right to vote was part of their struggles for a better world overall. And that it to talk about just having equal rights with men doesn't mean very much when the equal rights are for men that have terrible working conditions like you, if you're working class, who share equally unsanitary housing, overcrowded, the fear of unemployment. Bosses that have power over you—the idea that you just fight for equal rights in an abstract way isn't enough for you—and so they connected the struggles for suffrage to the struggles for a better life in the workplace as well. And there's a wonderful book by uh, Lydington and Norris called One Hand Tied Behind Us that came out in the '80s, which I think everybody should read. It's a wonderful book, and they quote one of the leaders. Of this kind of of this movement of these young radical trade unionists who began to also take up the political questions of suffrage. And they quote Selena Cooper, speaker at an open-air meeting in Wigan outside Manchester, and she says this: Women do not want their political power to enable them to boast that they are on equal terms with the men. They want to use it for the same purpose as men, to get better conditions. Every woman in England is longing for her political freedom in order to make the lot of the worker pleasanter and to bring about reforms which are wanted. We do not want it as a mere plaything.
2: Mm.
1: I think that's a lovely quote because it yeah. really sums up that connecting, the struggles that work with, connect, with, connect, with political struggles in society as well. And for lots of them, they connected it to the bigger struggle for socialism as well.
0: Yeah. So what other stories come out of this period in terms of these working, the working class women that we don't hear about as much as we hear about the Pankhursts?
1: Yeah, well, I think there's a lot to be said for the tradition of history from below, that a lot of that emerged in the kind of anti-Stalinist left mm-hmm. in the 1960s. And I think the Lidington and Norris book, uh, and there's a more recent one called Rebel Girls as well, stand in that tradition, and it's the book is full of these lovely stories of these individual kind of leaders of that movement. So one that's a bit more known about these days is a woman called Ada Neil Chu, who was a tailoress in Crewe outside Manchester, again, who got involved in struggles when she was a whistleblower on sweatshop on sweat, sweat conditions in her first job, and she wrote a number of letters as factory girl to the local newspaper, exposing low wages and the degradation of piecework, where you got paid according to how much you did. And she became a bit of a kind of cause celeb. If you think about the activists in Bunnings who wrote the article for Red Flag Mm. in Sydney this year, that became a bit of a symbol for the fact that the New South Wales government were not shutting down Workplaces when there was meant we were meant to be you know in a stay at home situation a lockdown but it wasn't happening properly her that became a bit of a in in the crew area her letters to the newspaper became kind of exposing the terrible conditions where where she worked and she. In in there was a there was a meeting and the management were trying to witch hunt and she outed herself. They sacked her and then there was a campaign to rescue her that was led by Eleanor Marx and the Gas Workers Union. And she won her, b- her job back and she won back better conditions in the workplace. Late, not long after she left the job and she went to work on issues around women's suffrage. Another woman is Selena Cooper who was a mill worker from the age of ten. She was one of the first women to attend. TUC conference at the turn of the 20th century and, and fight for support within the trade unions for women's right to vote. There's a woman called Helen Silcock who was president of the Wigan Weavers Union. So there was loads of these women and the book is called One Hand Tied Behind Us because these were women who went to work all day, had children, had families and every evening went out fighting and campaigning, be it over conditions in the, in the workplace Albeit for the, you know, the right to vote. And they came from different trade unions and organizations. But they were kind of brought together, these radical suffragists with socialists, to form the Lancashire and Cheshire, Cheshire Women's Textile and Other Women's Representation Committee in 1903. Catchy. And that's really where the modern where the suffrage movement came from in Britain. It was mm-hmm. these working class women. Who connected the struggles for working class rights to those of the right for women to vote? Yeah. And so
0: these suffragists now, we're using this word. Why are we using suffragist?
1: Yeah, because it's, it's to make a distinction between them yeah. and the suffragettes. Uh,
0: yeah.
1: the, the suffragettes, the Women's Social and Political Union, they were kind of given that name after uh, Christabel Pankhurst first interrupted a Liberal MP. Speaking, I think it was Churchill actually in Manchester, and the the newspapers dubbed them the suffragettes, and she took up that name to distinguish herself from the suffragists women. And that you know it was a really important campaign that they were based in Lancashire and Cheshire because eighty five percent of all organised women workers were in the cotton unions. That was over ninety thousand women, and they became the backbone of the radical campaign. For women to have the right to vote, you know, again, women textile workers leading a movement, as we saw in Russia mm-hmm. in nineteen seventeen in the Russian Revolution, as we saw in Myanmar this year, you know, there's beautiful pictures of the women leading the struggles there uh, against the against the dictatorship, and yeah. as we saw in Egypt in two thousand
0: eleven, yeah. yeah, indeed, textile workers, yeah, yeah, so so this is the turn of the century right now so come 1900 um what were some of the kind of orientations of the campaign for these suffragists at this point then
1: yeah so they won they ran a really impressive campaign amongst the most organized sections of women workers and that had a massive impact on winning the argument in the wider labor movement so you got the kind of sectionally skilled trade unions i talked about earlier and they represented A political conservatism in the British trade union movement, the radical suffragists pointed to the alternative, really, and they started in the small mill towns where they were active trade unionists, going door to door, pulling together great petitions to Parliament for the right to vote. In the Liddington and Norris book, at one point, they say within a year, the petition they took to Parliament looked like a garden roller in dimensions. Which I love that image. Yeah. And they linked up with other suffrage groups. There were there were middle class suffrage campaigns and uh, you know, going back to Mary Wollstonecraft after the French Revolution, there was a tradition of women arguing and fighting for their rights. But they linked up with those groups and with socialist groups and they held open-air meetings to argue for their cause. They galvanized thousands and thousands of women to take part in demonstrations. They tried to raise the issue in every election and by-election that was taking place to carry their arguments into the working class. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: What none of them ever argued for was the idea that the campaign should be limited to be about votes on the same basis uh, as was currently held by men. Because that would have granted only five, but it would have granted 40% of women the vote because there was a property qualification in England at the time but it would only have granted that to 5% of women because they either, working class women, because they either didn't own property or they didn't rent in their name. They often rented in their husband's name. So that differentiated them, the suffragists, from the suffragette campaign, which grew out of their original campaign, but consciously rejected that more radical tradition.
0: Yeah. So in walks the Pankhurst. Yeah. (laughs) Tell us about them and the, the role of them, because they have quite contrasting politics, obviously.
1: Yeah. I mean, initially, I mean, the Pankhurst and the WSPU, kind of, there were links between them and the suffragists. And uh, the Pankhurst were involved in the Independent Labour Party, for example, which was one of the organisations that formed the British Labour Party as we know it today, which was a bit more moderate than some other groups. And they, and they set up the Women's Social and Political Union as one of many organisations, and they called mass demos alongside the suffragists in Manchester and London, etc. But pretty quickly, the WSPU became not just one organisation working with others, but an organisation that became determined to dominate the movement and actually smash the influence of these other groups. And it was created as a deliberate break by Emmeline Pankhurst, who was the kind of mother of the the Christabel, Sylvia, Adela, the Pankhurst young women who were all involved in one way or another in the campaigns. And it was a break from their roots in the independent Labour Party. And it was a a conscious right-wing break which fought to take the movement in a different direction, a less radical one, you know, one that sought to accommodate the demands of the campaign within the framework of the existing system, even though they employed militant tactics. So initially they very much said, no, we want suffrage on the same basis as men, which would not touch the lives of the overwhelming majority of women in Britain. And as I said, only 5% of working class women. Mm. So initially they did work alongside other groups, but it didn't take very long for them to kind of deliberately uncouple themselves from their links, and and I use the kind of word of the suffragists being radical to make a distinction between that and militancy, because as we know, the trajectory of the WSPU was one that became about militant actions, but I think what happened to them shows that militancy is not necessarily radical or left-wing, and it actually led to the overshadowing and demobilisation of what was i think a more radical campaign
0: yeah so they take up this mantle and try to bring it drive it to the right to get rid of some of the previous tactics of the campaign so why does this difference matter let's just sit with this for a second the radical and the militant for some people those things mean the same thing what do they mean to you
1: Well, I think one of the things about the suffragettes is because they suffered massively under the kind of brutal weight of the British state. It's almost become, you know, you're not allowed to question their tactics or to, because these great martyrs who, you know, repeatedly went to jail, who, you know, who were brutally, uh, when they went on hunger strikes, brutally treated by the men of their own class you know it kind of it becomes like you're not allowed to criticize them because they suffered so much but the problem with those kind of tactics is it reflected a worldview that suffering was the way to bring change and really they were trying to you know bring change through individual acts of martyrdom as though this would appeal to the humanity. Of their brothers, their husbands and fathers, you know, the ruling class men of Britain. But really, the death of Emily Davidson, you know, who threw herself under the King's horse at the Derby in 1908, meant nothing to these men. They were responsible for the vicious expansion of the British Empire. They were engaged in a massively massive military build up that would lead to the slaughter of World War I. The deaths of a few individual women to them were not important. And the kind of tactics that we used, these militant tactics, were not tactics that we used to mobilize a wider movement. There was some of that at the start, but increasingly it became a secret organization, it became an autocratic organization, and it became, if you were serious about this cause, you had to commit more and more extreme acts to prove how much you should have the vote, rather than use, you know the mobilization of a mass movement to bring about change. Yeah. of
0: mm-hmm. the So this kind of suffering strategy. Um like this represented a change in the campaign, as you said, uh, um not just in the strategy and the tactics of the campaign, but also in the demands of the campaign. Do you wanna say something about that in terms yeah. of Yeah.
1: Because I think this is a bit of the history that really is very much hidden. Yeah. That it became it changed, you know, for the suffragists, this was a campaign for voting for votes for all women. The suffragettes said, oh no, we can only take little steps at a time and the campaign has got to be on the same basis as men. So it wasn't about adult suffrage or votes for all women. It was for a minority of women. And actually that isn't going to mobilise large numbers of people. It's not going to mobilise those working class women. And one of the uh, radical suffragists said that the campaign slogan of the suffragettes vote for women actually meant votes for the ladies. And the suffragettes broke from the politics of looking to the labour movement and trade unions as the base of the campaign, and that led to the demobilising of mass protests and the connecting of the political campaign to those other struggles for better working conditions, etc. Christabel Pankhurst was very clear about this. She was the kind of leading person in the WSPU argued for that. And she said that working-class women were the weakest in society, and the movement should be about mobilizing the educated elites. And it kind of the tactics that they were involved in you know, the, it, the individual acts of heckling liberal speakers, chaining themselves to the railings of parliament, smashing shop windows, etc were designed to shame the liberal government and politicians into action. And it moved away, really, from winning the mass of people to the cause. And forcing change from below to a kind of, you know, focusing on individual politicians. And it did involve working class women, but it was only ever as individuals. And as I said, increasingly it became a top down authoritarian organisation, every action being directed by Christabel Pankhurst. Annie Kenny was a very famous working class woman involved in the suffragettes, but she said this in, you know, she absolutely defended. Christabel's actions an autocracy suits my conservative liberty loving nature (laughs) the true and inner secret of the militant movement was that we were an autocracy no committee has or ever will run a revolution as though that's how change comes about
0: yeah and so that's what the whole history of any kind of social revolution (laughs) has ever been in fact Committees are the only thing that ever runs (laughs) revolutions. Yeah. Um, So they didn't like the working class, right? Christabel was pretty, uh, not just um, agnostic on the question, but pretty anti-working class.
1: Yeah. So she wasn't just for mobilising the middle class women as as the leaders, but she was rabidly anti-working class and against the struggles of the rights of working class men and women. So in 1911, there's a whole period called the Great unrest in British history, which was a bit like New Unionism or Chartism, a massive wave of struggle. She advocated for people who led those strikes to be jailed and for new legislation to make that easier. And the kind of they swung between these kind of outlandish publicity acts, such as uh, famously slashing, I think it's the Venus de Milo in the National Gallery, yeah, or digging up exclusive golf course. <laughs> To then meeting with members of the Liberal government, they would put the brakes on campaigns when they were given a hearing, you know, any crumb that was yeah. thrown at them, you can have a meeting, etc. And then they would then switch back to attempt to, to wreck the Liberals in the election campaign because they were the government at the time. And that wasn't done on a left-wing basis. There were kind of two ruling class parties, the Liberals and the Tories and the Liberals ended up disappearing, really, in 1914. But they didn't, you know, campaign against the Liberal government on the left. In many cases, they campaigned and ensured that you got a Conservative candidate elected instead, you know. This was kind of treating the rest of the movement as a light bulb that you can switch on and off. But actually, when you treat people like that, you know, I'm sure, you know, you've both been involved in campaigns with unions, etc., if unions treat struggles in that way, you get diminishing returns less and less people get involved. Yeah. And that's what happened with the with the suffragettes.
2: Mm.
1: Yeah. yeah. And there's this amazing little anecdote actually in Rachel Holmes's uh monster-sized biography of Sylvia Pankhurst, that uh that one that after the Liberal government is re-elected in 1910 and they're a minority government and they rely on the Irish home rule kind of uh, party to get some votes and they rely on the first kind of Labour Party candidates that are elected, they just torpedo a bill to allow women to vote on the same basis as men. And one cabinet minister is quoted in the Rachel Holmes books saying, we weren't under pressure from a large movement such as chartism. We don't really need to concede the rights for uh, for women to vote yeah. which was astonishing, really, that you could say that,
0: you know. Yeah, oh, it's like the ruling class understand the politics of it better than um, better Christopher Pankhurst did. Yeah. So what about the other um, more left-wing Pankhurst, Sylvia, then? How, how was she involved in more radical things? How did that um, pan out?
1: Yeah, I mean I remember years ago when I first read Sylvia Pankhurst's writings about the movement, from the very beginning really she didn't really agree with the directions of the uh, WSPU and the splits from the ILP and moving it away from the working class basis, but she never really spoke out publicly about those things and didn't organise separately really until she was kicked out by Christabel Uh, Sylvia got more and more involved in working-class struggles from 19... Really, the Great Unrest was a big catalyst for her because that gave life to new radical ways of organising, of big strikes in Britain and in Ireland as well. And then in the kind of, like, more radical ways of organising, in the way that struggles for equal pay or abortion and free childcare in countries such as Australia and Britain in the 1960s onwards, they were intimately connected to the other struggles in society. And she kind of believed in that. And she personally moved more and more away from the kind of individual acts and the you know, the militant tactics to, I think, radical involvement in other struggles. So she spoke alongside James Connolly, who was a revolutionary trade unionist organi- uh, leader from Ireland, at a solidarity meeting for Dublin transport workers who were locked out from their bosses for a number of months. She spoke at a mass meeting alongside him in the Albert Hall in London. She thought that the movement should focus on the mass mobilisation of working class women. And eventually, I mean, she was kind of sidelined from like 1910 onwards, uh, like sent on tours of America for example, and Christabel finally expelled her in 1914, but really from about 1910, she broke from them. And she established the East London Federation of Suffragettes shortly before she was expelled. And she'd been influenced by the radical workers' movement in Britain, but also on the tours in America, where, again, there were working-class, textile working-class women involved in the centre of a mass unionization strike. So when she arrived in 1911 in America on a tour, for example, there was a four-month strike by 45,000 garment workers in Chicago. There was a mass radicalization. That came out of a mass radicalization. There was a famous horrific fire in the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory in New York, where 146 mainly immigrant women died. They were locked into the building during the working hours and not allowed out, and that's why they died. And she said this, Sylvia Pankhurst I wanted to rouse these women of the submerged mass to be not merely the argument of more fortunate people, but to be fighters for their own account, despising mere platitudes and catch cries, revolting against the hideous conditions about them, and demanding for themselves and their families a full share of the benefits of civilization and progress. Mm. So Sylvia Pankhurst kind of took her section of the movement back really to the traditions of 10, 15 years ago of the radical suffragists.
0: Yeah, that is a great quote. Mm-hmm. So then this comes up against the outbreak of World War I, and this is the real test for everyone's politics, on yeah. every question really, but including mm-hmm. the suffragettes. So what happens at that moment?
1: So, uh, Emmeline Pankhurst, Christabel Pankhurst, and the WSPU call a truce on the campaigning for the rights of women to vote under the, you know, the stance of national unity when World War I breaks out. And so they actively support the slaughter of millions in World War I. And they uh, go out and they campaign for men to join up they are one of they don't set up some people say they set up the white feather campaign of giving that to men of cons- of you know fighting age who don't volunteer before conscription is brought in they don't set it up but they're involved in that mm. they disband the WSPU they change the name of their publication to britannia and it becomes a flag flag waving for the british empire and Emmeline Pankhurst consciously directed supporters to take part in the campaign of giving the white feathers to conscientious objectors. And this, her love for the war knew no national boundaries. When the Russian Revolution happened in 1917, uh, when the provisional government is in power after the first revolution in February 1917, and they're under pressure to end the war, she takes herself to Russia to campaign for the provisional government to stay in the war, to keep fighting in the war, and she ended her political career as a member of the Conservative Party, and then ended up going to North uh, America to lecture the young people of America and Canada on the need for chastity. That's mm. where you end up, if <laughs> Emmeline Pankhurst. Yeah. yeah, and Sylvia goes the opposite direction. She becomes much more radical and more left-wing. And by the, she started World War One with a kind of pacifist position but by the end of world war one she believed in revolution and she was absolutely inspired by the russian revolution she was a founding member of the communist party of great britain there's a a lovely book by catherine Connolly, a british socialist called sylvia pankhurst suffragette socialist and scourge of empire which is a lovely read actually and kind of goes through her life and you know focuses a lot on this radical shift to the left yeah Mm -hmm. So then, the kind
0: of conventional history is that at, at the end of the war, because um, women have contributed so much uh, and the suffragettes have supported the war, that they're kind of rewarded by get, getting the vote. Finally, the ruling class men decide it's time yeah. to, to kind of hand it over. Yeah. What's your interpretation of that um, conclusion?
1: Well, firstly, most women didn't get the vote after World War One, yeah. as I said right at the outset. And it's true that World War I led to massive changes in women's lives. You know, the number of women transport workers, for example, increased by 4,000%. Over a million women worked in musician, uh, munitions and essential industries. But I, I I, would argue for a different interpretation of why women got got the vote. I think it's about the ruling classes in Europe needing to give concessions because of this terrible war that you put people through. And that revolution is breaking out across Europe, you know, from Russia to Germany to Hungary to, uh, you know, there's mass struggles, there's revolts in the armies, not just in Germany but in France and Britain, etc. And they give concessions as the order of the day. And the extension of the vote to nearly all men in 1918 and some women is part of that. And the brilliant recent book by Tom Bramble and Mick Armstrong, their book, The Fight for Workers' Power, quotes David Lloyd George, who was the British Prime Minister at the end of the war, and he said this, The whole of Europe is filled with the spirit of revolution. There is a deep sense, not only of discontent, but of anger and revolt amongst the working men against the pre-war conditions. The whole existing order in its political, social, and economic aspects is questioned by the masses from one end of Europe to the other. So I think, you know, the the granting of the vote for women was actually a response to the fear of revolution and trying to grant concessions to prevent that happening. Yeah.
0: And if you want to hear more about that book, we have an interview with Tom (laughs) Bramble on the podcast, just to get a quick plug in. Um, Okay. Final question, what are the lessons from all of this? I mean, we've kind of spelled it out, uh, or you've spelled it out really as we've gone along, but summarise yeah. if you I can. Think,
1: but the, the idea that the suffragettes offer this model for a successful campaign to fight for women's rights is a lie. I think even on an issue that seemingly cuts across class lines, you know, the universal issue such as a political right, the right to vote, there is no unity of the oppressed. Bourgeois women had different goals, they had different strategies, and they were avowedly anti-working class in their desire to achieve them. They were prepared to get the vote and pull the ladder up behind them and not give a damn about the vast majority of women, including the women who had heroically, you know, led the struggles that they came from. I think the fight for women's liberation was and always will be bound up with the struggle against the system as a whole. And those that have understand those links, have fought along those lines, are the real heroes of the fight to emancipate women.
0: Yep. And we stand on their shoulders, not the uh, bloody Pankhurst. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much for all of that. It's really yeah, such an interesting discussion and I encourage people to read more if they've been inspired and we'll put the names of some of those books you mentioned um, into the notes for this episode um, and again thanks for being such a great friend of the show thank you for having me back mm. thanks Liam uh, and if you do want to if you're inspired to donate to our Patreon Red Flag Radio podcast you'll find us and um, thank you for listening and please share as well if you've enjoyed this discussion this is Red Flag Radio we have a world to win